Today is July the 7th, 2009. And I'm going to be doing a discussion tonight on something that's going to be a very controversial subject. And it's called A Woman's Place. Is a woman's place supposed to be in the home? Or is a woman's place supposed to be in leadership in the church? Now, a lot of this information that I'm going to be Beacon Hill Press, Kansas City, at 2923 Troost Avenue, Kansas City, Missouri. Now, one of the reasons that I am so interested in this subject is because of the fact that this is coming uh, directly from an Armenian holiness perspective, which my mother is involved in, and which... I was raised all the way from grade school to high school in the Church of God Holiness movement. So this this is very interesting stuff, put it that way, very interesting stuff. Now, um, there's basically two different ideas about what constitutes proper uh, leadership in the church. We know that been around for a long time. There's a whole group of people out there that absolutely deny uh, the reality of um, a woman's um, supposed to <laughs> being silent in the church. You know, they take on all the scriptures about we're all one in Christ and there's neither Greek Jew nor Greek, there's neither, and we know that passage of Scripture, there's neither male or female. But that has not any implications in regards to church leadership. And uh, so I want to be real certain that I, I'm going to give a brief history uh, of the roots of, of feminism in the church and hopefully this will be enlightening hopefully it will be uh, something that will get some people's attention <laughs> we uh, it's amazing what we can learn by just studying different perspectives out there now <coughs> We know that there is a lot of ordained women ministers in the churches today in the United States. There's probably more ordained women in the United Methodist Church than any church, I would say. It's um, partly because of the history of that movement. Um, because of John Wesley and his supporting uh, women ministers. But, you know, a lot of people say, well, the, you know, basically feminism sprang out of Marx's socialism. But it didn't. And it didn't spring out of secular humanism. Um, but it sprang out of the Arminian evangelical and holiness revivals okay that's where it came from and uh, and Charles Finney 
and reform movements spawn people like Janet Hassey in her study of evangelical women in public ministry around the turn of the century agrees that evangelical feminism in America first surfaced in the mid-19th century and accelerated at the turn of the century and mobilized women and freed leaders such as Phoebe Palmer and Frances Willard to preach. And also we know that the Quakers, because of their inner right religion, special revelation, brought in women, uh, people in leadership. And John Wesley uh, became a major advocate, not at first, but because his mother, Susanna Wesley, was so involved in doing home Bible studies and all of that, that he came to endorse it uh, and, and become a proponent of women ministers. Um, now, one of the things that I'm going to say, which is probably going to make a lot of people upset, and that is this. Um, the suffrage movement and the women's right to vote has nothing to do with women preachers. Now, a lot of people say, well, it has everything to do with it. No, it doesn't. Um, I'm not saying it didn't have an impact on women getting the right to vote. But what I'm saying is that there are two different, that's not apples and oranges, that's oranges and apples. It's not apples and apples. Just because a woman has the right to vote doesn't give her the right to get up in a pulpit in a church and preach the gospel. Paul was very clear, and I know the feminists get very upset. I even saw in this book that one of the Nazarene uh, ladies that were ordained, Plummer, came to the parsonage and said, Who's the minister of this church? And she goes, I am. He goes, Well, I thought the church said that a woman's supposed to be silent in the church. And she goes, Paul said that, but Paul didn't call me in the ministry. God did. See how they get around it? In other words, we don't go by the Apostle Paul. We only go by the Apostle Paul where we want to go by. Okay? So, we see that like I said, George Fox's innovations um, started bringing in women ministers. Uh, one of his early converts was Margaret Fell, and her home became a prominent meeting place for Quaker preachers. And she was a big writer on behalf of the movement and so on. And um, uh, one of the most I guess celebrated converts of the Quakers was William Penn. Now, by the way, William Penn was a 33rd degree Mason. You need to know that. But um, you know, he was um, uh, very prominent in uh, spreading the Quaker version of the gospel um, as well, and. Uh, Anyway, John Wesley, he was a, began as an Anglican priest, and but at first he, he preached against women ministers. 
and use the Pauline text prohibiting women from speaking and teaching. But, like I said, his mother um, was a nonconformist and she had enormous impact upon him, unlike my mother has had upon me. And um, she turned her family worship into Sunday evening service to which she invited friends and neighbors. She became his worship leader. Well, she circumvented the authority of her husband is what she did. And uh, I can remember a time in family devotions where my dad threw the Bible at my mom and says, from now on you're in charge of family devotions. That was relinquishing the authority and the spiritual headship of the home. Now Wesley encouraged both men and women to sing, pray, testify, exhort, remonstrate, and encourage one another in the society meetings. So he invited women right into the leadership role in the meetings. Um, And anyway, as a result of that, uh, there was a lady named Sarah Crosby. And she says, quote, In the evening I expected to meet about 30 persons, but to my great surprise there came nearly 200. I found an awful loving sense of the Lord's presence and much love to the people. I was not sure whether it was right for me to exhort in so public a manner. See, her conscience was bothered. And yet I saw it impractical to meet all these people by way of speaking particularly to each individual. I therefore gave out a hymn and prayed and told them part of what the Lord had done for myself, persuading them to flee from all sin. She was preaching. She was preaching. Um, and Wesley, Wesley uh, basically just upheld it. Okay. And... Um, So, in the decade prior to Wesley's death in 1791, there was a number of preachers within the Methodism all over England. I mean, this Mary Fletcher, she preached to crowds of over 2,000 to 3,000 people. You know. And uh, when her husband died, Wesley encouraged her to preach as much as possible. This goes great, uh, totally against what Paul said. People just totally ignore the Bible. Um, Adam Clark supported Wesley in this whole thing, and um, you know he said they have equal rights and equal privileges and equal blessings. No, they not not as it relates to church leadership. Paul makes that very clear. People just have decided to just do away with that whole portion of Scripture just like they've done away with the ninth chapter of Romans. Charles Finney, 1792-1875, has often been called the father of American revivalism. Like Wesley, Finney started popularizing protracted meetings and then tried to get uh, into the altar call business, tried to play God, do God's work for him. And then he opened the door wide for women lectures and preachers. Well, that was not going by the Bible. That's all it is. 
was changing the Word of God. And of course, Finney influenced people like Dwight L. Moody, uh, who encouraged a number of women preachers, like Francis Willard, who was uh, supposedly a powerful speaker. And um, then they got, of course, in the Women's Christian Temperance Union. And this Francis Willard used to use this platform to promote the cause of equal rights and women's suffrage and so on. But she published a strong defense of female ministry titled Women in the Pulpit. And uh, here we go. You know, and then Oberlin College in Ohio. Um, and it was founded in the early 1830s and it was promoting Finney's um, theology and um, Finney served as a professor of theology before succeeding A.C. Mahan in the presidency and um, but it had a feminist exegesis which grew out of the uh, uh, abolitionist movement, of course. But Overland College graduated a lot of women who became leaders in both the abolitionist and the feminist movement in the 19th century. And um, anyway, it, it's amazing how that this whole movement came into being. Antoinette, Antoinette Brown was America's first regularly ordained woman minister. She graduated from this Finney College, Oberlin, in 1847. And then she returned three years. She returned a year later to take a three-year course in theology. And... Um, You know, and for a, for a while they denied uh, women to to access to the pulpits. But she she went out and lectured and drew large crowds. Of course, one of her ardent supporters was Horace Greeley, who was the founder of the New York Tribune, and he offered her a pulpit in New York City with a large salary. Well. She was finally ordained by the Westland Methodist leader Luther Lee in 1853, and um, I just find it now it's really interesting because where did she end up? Where did where did this gal end up? Well, she ended up. Um, at 75 years old, she became a pastor of a Unitarian church. Okay? So her Arminianism took her into Unitarianism. Is that something to be, uh, be uh, proclaiming? This Nazarene person that's putting this out, is this a good thing? Is she ended up in Unitarianism? Now, Phoebe Palmer. 
Uh, it says the, the cause of women's rights received a mighty thrust from the work of Phoebe Palmer, a fish, physician's wife and a Methodist lay evangelist. She is often referred to as the, quote, mother of holiness movement, end quote. Well, she did the same thing. She started having meetings in her home. And here, according to this book, hundreds of Methodist preachers were sanctified under her influence. Wait a minute. Jesus Christ is the one that sets us apart. And it says including five bishops. Well, does that mean Catholics? And then it says her success inspired scores of other women to initiate holiness meetings. Oh, so her success. What was her success? You know? Anyway, it's it's amazing. It says she played a major role in the revival of 1857 to preach to great crowds all over the country. Well, it's not biblical, folks. The Bible says that the woman is to be silent in the church. She's not to usurp authority over her husband. She published a 421-page book defending the right of women to preach. That ought to tell you something. 421 pages. Well, she based her argument on the prophecy of Joel. Wait a minute. In, in that prophecy in Acts relating to Joel say this is that. That was a one-time situation there. It wasn't an ongoing thing. Says she made an eloquent plea that women should be allowed to be full participants in the ministry, and on and on and on. Well, look, you can either accept the word of God or you can reject it. And the fact is that Phoebe Palmer uh, was in disobedience to the word of God, and. Um, Anyway, it, it, it's amazing me how she says it's man-made restraints. No, it's not man-made restraints. The Apostle Paul is the one that gave this directing, directive as it relates to church leadership. And um, so she's credited with bringing excess of 25,000 people to Christ for salvation. Let me tell you something. No man brings anyone to Christ for salvation. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. She also encouraged many women to assert themselves in preaching. No, she encouraged people to go against the Word of God, including Catherine Booth, who uh, with her husband started the Salvation Army. And look where it is today. For crying out loud. I'm sorry. It's the most liberal... Uh, it's you know it's a mess. It's a mess. And she was one of the first women to lead any major denomination in Protestant history. But guess what? She kept her hyphenated name. That's where it all started. Booth hyphen Tucker and Booth hyphen Clipper and so on. And then out of that, of course, came the Bible College movement. Historian Jeanette 
Hassey asserts that Bible institutes played an important part in shaping the turn of the century evangelicalism and provide a major training ground for evangelical women of that era who entered public ministry. Well, remember Albert B. Simpson was the founder of a Christian and Missionary Alliance church. And he gave women a prominent place in the church ministry and leadership. You know, he even included them on the board, employed them as Bible professors, and was proud of his school's records of sending women into evangelists and the pastors and so on. And, um, well, that's interesting. That is interesting. Well, you know, that's what happens when people start changing the Word of God to say and try to justify and rationalize away the clearly revealed Word of God. Um, Moody, Moody Bible Institute, continuously pled for both men and women to respond to God's call to preach and minister. Well, that's not God's call. God does not call women into preaching. I can tell you that because Paul taught against men, women preaching. And in Moody Bible Institute, women were not only accepted as preachers and Bible teachers, but also sought out by churches. Were sought out by churches. For over 40 years, Moody graduated women who openly served as pastors, evangelists, pulpit supply preachers, Bible teachers, and even in the ordained ministry. Now, they are changing that now. Now, let's look at the holiness denomination. The Westland Methodists began to ordain women in the 1860s. No wonder um, there's so much uh, usurping the authority of men in the home and women going their own way and not coming under husband's authority. No wonder it's so rampant because it, it way back there in the 1860s there's a connection between the Westland Methodists and this ordination of women. The Seneca Fall meetings of 1848 that launched the movement and first called for the franchise for women was held in the Westland Methodist Church, wouldn't you know? Well, um, we know that the Church of God of Anderson, Indiana was established in 1880s and 25% of its ministers and delegates were women. And uh, the church leader at that time, F.G. Smith, spelled out the movement's rationale for not only permitting but encouraging women to preach. Here's, how he's, here's his rationale. I call your attention to the organization of the church by the Holy Spirit. A man is a, 
evangelist because he has the gift of evangelizing. It's not because he's a man, but because he has the particular gift. The gift itself is the proof of his calling. If a woman has divine gifts fitting her for a particular work in the church, that is proof and the only proof needed. And uh, any other basis of qualification of the divine gifts is superficial and arbitrary and ignores the divine plan of organization and government church. In other words, we're going to take a woman's statement that she's been called by God over and above what Paul teaches as it relates to leadership in the church by women. That's basically what he's saying. And the Pilgrim Holiness Church, founded by Seth Rees, father of Paul S. Rees, prominent in the founding of the National Association of Evangelicals in the 1940s, opened wide the door to women preachers who comprised 30% of the ordained elders in the, its early decades of Pilgrim Holiness Church. Rees' wife served with him as co-pastor and co-evangelist. That's in the Pilgrim Holiness Church. And you know what he said to people who oppose women preachers? He said it was nothing but jealousy, prejudice, bigotry, and a stingy love for bossing in men having prevented men, women public recognition by the church. In other words, just totally ignore what Paul is teaching and just say it's bigotry. Doesn't that sound familiar today? Isn't that the same kind of argument that's coming from the homosexuals that we're just bigots? has nothing to do with the fact that we're bigots. It has, the Bible says that homosexuality is an abomination. But this is exactly the same thing, the arguments they were coming against those that were trying to uphold what Paul taught as it relates to leaders in the church. Same thing in the church of the Nazarene. Phineas Brisey organized the first church in Nazarene in Los Angeles in 1895. And women preachers and leaders played a vital role in the life of that church. Okay? And so we can see that this has not been something that's just happened in the last ten years. This has been around since the 1800s. Okay, I mean, um, well, anyway, it's amazing to me how that we just want to continue to try to justify going against the Word of God. Um, Four main groups of holiness churches united. Approximately 15% of the licensed and ordained elders were women. This swelled to over 20% during the next four decades with some regions reporting more than 30% of their ministers as women. Well, there we go. Nazarene Church. And, you know, that... You know, and I understand now the logic behind it all the re this book put out at Beacon Press in Kansas City and how it so makes it appear as uh, those that are coming against this are absolute bigots and and are trying to to uh, be uh, treat women less than persons and all that just because they're trying to uphold the word of God. Now here's what she says here. 
it says that uh, sadly uh, women comprise about 10% of the currently licensed and ordained ministry with less than 1% serving as pastors. Now it's talking there about women in the Nazarene church. Well, and I think it's also talking about um, just how, how it says once again the Lord is pouring out His Spirit on His handmaids in the church of Nazarene and calling them to preach. The question is, are we ready to receive them? Well, I'll tell you, it's it's amazing to me how this whole subject of women in the church has become such a um, uh, interesting study for me, having been brought up in the Wesleyan Arminian background and realizing that from uh, Janet Hassey to Phoebe Palmer to Francis Willard to the Quakers to John Wesley and his uh, promoting it and then of course um, uh, Charles Finney and Dwight Moody and Oberlin College and Antoinette Brown and and uh, Salvation Army and the Bible College Movement and the Holiness Denominations and the Church of Nazarene, all of these groups, how they have been um, reinforcing feminism. And now that's why we have uh, our churches in such a mess today as a result of all of this Holiness Movement so upholding and uh, women preachers and denying clearly revealed the word of God in regards to it. Now, it's an it's a absolute understanding as to why we're at where we're at today. You know, why you, you get such a hodgepodge. Once you start changing the word of God, folks, once you start changing it. Now, if you want to... Um, Actually, I guess my suggestion would be if you really want to look a little bit closer at this, and this is this is actually supporting the other side, um, is what I'm saying. This this is actually supporting the other side. This is a book called A Woman's Place: Leadership in the Church. Copyright C S Cowles C O W L E S. Doctor of Sacred Theology and Professor of Religion, Point Loma Nazarene University. And I would, you know, if you want to uh, go to this website, I'll even give you the, the website address. And you can read the eight chapters of this book and how it justifies women's leadership in the church. And that way you can see the rest of the story. HTTP forward slash forward slash www.ccel.us forward slash place dot toc dot html I'll give it to you again http colon forward slash forward slash www.ccel.us forward slash place dot toc dot html now, this 
should be pretty enlightening. I'm going to just read you the titles to the chapters. This is only eight chapters in this book. The Fractured Church. Chapter 1. Chapter 2. Women in History. Less than Human. (laughs) Chapter 3. Women in the Old Testament. Chapter 4. Jesus and Women. 5. Paul and Women. 6. Text Prohibiting the Public Ministry of Women. I mean, they actually know. They go through the text that actually prohibits the public ministry of women. But then they have a way of getting all the way around it and setting forth why they cannot obey the word of God. Chapter 7, Evangelical Roots of Biblical Feminism. They even they even admit the fact that it, it springs from the holiness movement. Chapter 8, Setting Women Free for Ministry. Setting them free. And it's referenced in the, there's bibliography and everything there, so I would encourage you to go and look at this. I wanted to just expose this for what it is. Now, one of the things that you'll find in this whole thing about this movement is they never uh, teach on election and predestination. They leave out reprobation. They leave out the ninth chapter of Romans, of course. But they have no problem. Once they start leaving scriptures out, they can just take whole bodies of theological uh, scriptures out and not even deal with it or not even treat it. No different than any other cult. And so once a person starts leaving out, cutting out the scriptures, saying, well, that doesn't apply today, then you might as well just take the Bible and throw it in the trash. That's my my opinion. If you're not going to go by the Bible, if you're going to cut out big portions of the Bible, and you're going to and, and again not have the intellectual honesty to say that Paul had nothing against women, he was speaking there specifically about women in leadership in the church, just like he was saying that the, that the elder should be the husband of one wife. That's a whole other subject, but it's amazing how people will twist that around to justify uh, their position as well. Father, we pray that you would take this history of the uh, women ministers coming into the fore and into the church and how that it came about and use it for your glory, we pray in Christ's name.